As most of us are aware, brothers and sisters, yesterday the Indian Prime Minister uh, Indira Modi inaugurated a grand temple to the Hindu god Ram in the iconic city of Ayodhya. And this inauguration was planned for many decades, and it was a very lavish ceremony. Some of the uh, most influential, iconic figures of the country came. You had the multi-billionaires, the Ambanis, the Mithals. You had the sports players, the Tendulkars. You had the Bollywood stars, the Mitabachans. You had hundreds and hundreds of the creme de la creme of Indian society. And this grand consecration was broadcast live across the country, frankly, across the globe. And it featured the top-notch elite of India. And Mr. Modi gave a speech in which he stated that this wasn't just the inauguration of a temple. Rather, he heralded a new era for India. And he proclaimed a victory for the god Ram. And he said that this temple was a manifestation of the untidying of the knots of history, untangling a jumbled past. He's now made it straight. And he marked the beginning of a new dawn for India. He said a thousand years from now, today's date will be considered a historic date. Now, if we didn't look at the context, if we eliminated the context and the history, without a doubt, the average person would find the speech very inspirational. But when you take into account the reality of what occurred, and you take into account the symbolism of what is taking place, and also, by the way, how he dressed and the colors, the saffron colored, surrounded by the Brahman, you know, uh, pundits and gurus, and the entire ambience of Hinduism, if you understand the symbolism of what exactly took place, rather than feeling inspired, if we didn't have the fear of Allah in our hearts, it would strike terror into our hearts. And so today, inshallah ta'ala, the goal is to unpack what exactly is happening. And of course, as usual, only one lecture can do so much. So I'm going to summarize three separate aspects. First and foremost, the history of that temple and what happened. Secondly, a brief refutation of the mythology of uh, the Hindutva. And then thirdly, the political ramifications of what exactly took place. So first, let us begin. The history of that temple. The city of Ayodhya is actually a legendary mythical city mentioned in the ancient Vedic text, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata. It's considered to be the city of ancient gods. And in their texts, it is said that the god founder, Manu, who is like the main god, founded this legendary city, and that one of the main one of the main Vishnus, one of the main iterations of God, and that is Rama, was born in Ayodhya. This is mythic, this is legend. From the perspective of the BJP, what do they believe? They believe that mythical city that is mentioned in the Vedic text is the actual city of Ayodhya. Okay, that's the first point. The actual physical city that is now standing 
Is it actually linked to the mythical city? Most academics say that's just a myth and that's just a city that was named after it. But according to Hindu belief, that city that is physically Ayodhya, which is in UP, it's not too far from you know, the capitals, uh, Delhi and whatnot, from the perspective of the Hindu Tava, from the BJP, that city is the city mentioned in the Vedic scriptures. And that city was a holy city from the beginning of time. It is the holiest city according to them. And that city had in it a temple dedicated to the god Rama. According to their understanding, it was a magnificent temple. And then their version of history. In the 16th century, I'm saying from their perspective, an outsider force came. A barbarian, uncivilized, uncouth group of people. The Turkic fanatics, the Muslims under the command of Babur, one of the descendants of Tamerlane. And he pillaged and plundered and raped the land of India. This is their perspective. And he demolished their iconic symbol, which is the temple of Ram. And in its place, he built a masjid. So from their mythology, the destruction of the masjid and the reinstating of the temple has deep symbolic meaning. It is as if they are stripping India of the influence of the foreigner. Again, this is their mythology. Please understand. This says, I'm looking at history from their perspective. And these Hindutva groups, primarily the RSS and the BJP. Again, I've spoken about these two groups in other lectures. The RSS and the BJP are the two main Hindutva groups. If you don't know what Hindutva is, I have to quickly clarify or explain. Hindutva is an ideology that is religious, it is political, it is ethnic altogether. It is an ideology that is religious, political, and ethnic, and which claims that India should only belong to the Hindus. This is an ideology, Hindutva. And there are a number of political organizations that are affiliated with the Hindutva. It used to be RSS was number one. RSS went its up and down, the BJP came recently, and now the BJP is now the dominant party that is manifesting Hindutva. So, from the perspective of Hindutva, the demolishing of the temple and the, re the demolishing of the masjid and the reinstating of the temple is a reclaiming of their original heritage and a manifestation of the erasure of Muslim influence. We're going to come back to the symbolism. Now, what is the actual history, not the mythology? What is the academic history of this region? The mythical city of Ayodhya has nothing to do with the current city as it stands. This is like, you know, the, uh, talk about any mythical city in any ancient book, and then a civilization comes and says, you know what, we're going to name our city after that mythical city. There's actually no correlation because the Vedas were written thousands of years ago. And this city only got its name a few centuries ago. So actually, in reality, firstly, from an academic perspective, the, the, the mythical city never really existed. Or even if it did, it has nothing to do with the actual city standing here today. And of course... No person outside of the Hindu faith believes in the existence of Rama and Krishna and whatnot, much less the birth of Rama in a particular temple or city. So obviously this is legend. It's not actual fact. From the perspective of pure history, no religiosity, no mythology, 
the structure that stood there before the construction of the temple was in fact a masjid and it was built by we don't even know who it was built by one theory says Babar another theory says Aurangzeb and a third theory says by the Delhi Sultans before the coming of Babar to be very factual very historic we are actually not certain who built the masjid it is an old masjid some say it actually predates the Mughal Empire. And the reason why they say this is because the architectural structure resembles that of the Delhi Sultans more than that of the Mughals. Others say this is from Aurangzeb. But the majority say that it is from the time of Babar. And they say, as for the resembling of the architectural structure, the reason being Babar was the first Mughal, he didn't really start new architecture right now. So he took the existing styles, which is that of the Delhi Sultans, and he constructed a masjid in this uh, region or in this area. So for sure, we know a masjid has stood there for 500 years. And it was built we don't know exactly when. One report says 1526. Again, because the beginnings of this masjid are shrouded in history. Now, Babar, Babar was the founder of the Mughal dynasty. And Babar was a very literate person, very educated person. In fact, Babar wrote poetry. And Babar was one of the first people in all of Muslim history to write a detailed autobiography. You know this. Babar wrote his own life and times. And it is called the Babar Nama. And it is available even in English that has been translated. Babar wrote his own. He literally writes day by day a journal. One of the only Muslim rulers in all of our history to write a journal and chronicle. And it is published and available. And he writes in meticulous detail, sometimes even the meals that he had, sometimes even the fun and games, sometimes even the trivial... In the Babar Nama, he does not mention the building of this masjid. He doesn't mention it. And this is one of the theories why they say either he didn't build it or maybe it was built in his time, but it wasn't of that importance. It's going to become important later on. And we know historically the masjid's name was not the Babari Masjid throughout the 15th, 16th, 17th century. It had another name. And... The Babari Masjid, of course, uh, Babari means built by Babar, that's why. The term Babari Masjid only came into vogue in the last 100, 150 years. So historically speaking, we are not even certain who built the masjid. And this is not a very important point, but academically you should be aware. Historically, the origins are shrouded in, in uh, antiquity. One of the first mentions we have of this masjid in Western sources it's around 1750, a Christian Jesuit priest traveled through India and he wrote a chronicle of his journey. And if you want to find his name in writings, it is translated in English as well. Uh, his name is Joseph Taifenthaler. Joseph Taifenthaler. So this Jesuit priest went through Ayoda and he mentions, listen to this, the existence of a large masjid which some say was built by Aurangzeb, he says this, and some say was built by Babar. So he himself, writing in 1750, saying, eh, this is a beautiful, nice masjid, some say Aurangzeb built it, some say Babar built it, and he describes the masjid. There's three, you know, um, there's three domes on it. 
you will see, you'll be able to see uh, color pictures of the masjid because it was demolished in 1992. So we have color pictures. So he describes the three domes. He describes some of the beauty inside. He describes one of the unique things that the uh, Delhi Sultanate and also the Mughal Empire was known for. And that is, uh, all the Indian Pakistanis know this. If you go to one of the ancient Mughal and Delhi Sultanate structures and masjids, they have acoustics down to an unbelievable science. How many have visited the masjid in Lahore? That famous masjid in Lahore. You know when you give a whisper in one side, right? The Bachahi Masjid. When you give a whisper in one side, you can hear it from the other side. By the way, I swear to you, this is so mind-boggling. I mean, I had heard this. I said, come on, it can't be true. Two years ago, when I visited for the first time as an adult, I went as a child before. I went as an adult and I tested it myself. You know, my wife was on the other side of the masjid. I told her to whisper in the corner there. And I stood there and I could hear crystal clear. Still, how they did this, I have no clue. Even the clock ticking, you hear it. Yes, you can hear the clock ticking. So this Jesuit priest describes this phenomenon inside the masjid. That when somebody speaks at a certain place, they're able to project the acoustics to the whole masjid. So he's marveling. I've never seen this in my life. He's chronicling this. So, what is important for us? Back to our story here. I have to keep tangents to a minimum because there's so much to say and time is limited. The Jesuit priest writes, outside of the masjid, there is a raised platform that the local Hindus venerate because they think their god Rama was born there. This is a key historic fact that from 1750, there are two places separate from one another, but in visual distance. No riots, no animosity, no fighting. Here's the masjid, and there is a small temple. This is the masjid, beautiful. This is the temple the Hindus are venerating and thinking that Rama was born there. This clearly indicates that there were two separate facilities in close vicinity to one another, and nothing major is going on. The first person to claim that the masjid was built on a temple, the first person to claim this was a British civil servant by the name of Montgomery Martin. Montgomery Martin in the 1830s. He was the first person to lay this seed in the minds of the people. Why he did so, we're going to come back later on. A British civil servant begins this seed. And that seed is what? The temple, the masjid, is actually built on the ruins of a temple. And not surprisingly, as soon as the British Raj comes into power, the Mughal uh, Sultanate comes to an end in 1857, the, you know, the mutiny or the war of independence, the first time a riot takes place between Muslims and Hindus over the masjid, is under the British Raj in 1859. This is a very important fact. For 300 years, not a single Muslim or Hindu has fought in this region. There has never been a Muslim-Hindu riot from the beginning. Surprise, surprise, the British come along, and lo and behold, the riots begin. 1859, after the mutiny, some local Brahman priests declared that this masjid was built on holy land. And they raised a mob, attacked the masjid, 
laid siege to the masjid, prevented people from praying Jumu'ah. Violence occurred. Some people died. The British troops came in and they restored order and they gave it back to the Muslims. This is the first time there is a clash. Not under the Mughals, not under the Rajputs, not under the Marathas. Nobody's doing anything. The British come and now Hindu-Muslim are fighting. I'm going to come back to this point. In 1885, a few years later, the Brahman priests launch a petition with the British Raj, a legal suing. They want this property back. They say this was originally ours. The Muslims don't deserve it. This is the first time this notion is appearing in our history records that the Hindus are claiming the Muslims do not deserve this. The petition is not given attention and it has remained under Muslim territory. But the rhetoric has begun. And in the riots of 1930s, in the, in the 1930s under the end of the British Raj was when Hindu-Muslim riots really went mainstream. And again, we're going to explain why at the end of this lecture today. In 1930s, again, Ayodhya became a part of the Hindu-Muslim riots. And mobs broke out. Multiple people lost their lives fighting for the right to enter the masjid. Uh, the Hindus were fighting for the right to build their temple on the masjid. The Muslims are fighting back. And once again, under British rule, the masjid is handed back to the, the Muslims. Over and over again, the British uh, get involved and hand it back to the Muslims. India becomes independent. What year? 1947. 1947. Barely a few months later. This is on their mind. The target is there. Barely a few months later, hundreds of Hindu fanatics storm the masjid, kick out all the Muslims, and they construct inside the masjid many Hindu temples. They put their mandirs, they put their gods, you know, the Hindus have their physical gods there. They place statues of Ram and they start doing their rituals inside the masjid. And they lay siege to the masjid. They don't allow any Muslim. Now there is no British. Now you have the Indian government under Jawala Nehru. Nehru is in charge. Nehru orders the army in and in order to keep civil order, Nehru decides to shut the facility down. Neither Muslim nor Hindu. Neither Muslim nor Hindu. Barbed wires come around and so the Babri Masjid becomes just a monument. Nobody can go there. Well, it might be a monument, but in the hearts of the Muslims and the hearts of the Hindus, it occupies an important place. Again, it's a symbolic battle taking place. So for the next 30 years, minor skirmishes happen again and again. I'm not going to go every single one of them. Minor skirmishes happen. And then in the year 1987, one of the most popular Indian television series is produced. In fact, according to statistics, it is said this television series is the most watched television series in the planet. No other television series in any country has been watched by more people than this series. And it is a reenactment of the Mahabharata. It is a religious series, around 80 episodes, produced in 1987. By the way, all of them are on YouTube. You can watch them on YouTube, little section, sections of it. And this television series is about the god Ram. And it mentions Ayodha and the birth of Rama in this temple. This, by the way, this television series, um, it is said that when 
it used to be broadcast, India would shut down. It is said that uh, the smallest of villages, they pooled their resources to buy TVs for the first time. And everybody in the village would just come Sunday afternoon, whatever it was, and it was just a weekly, a weekly routine for the whole country. Almost a billion people would watch this TV series, like India would shut down. And of course, it is pure propaganda. By the way, this television series had a lot to do with the popularization of RSS and the BJP. You have to understand the power of media, O Muslims. The power of media. Not comparing the two, but when we watch something like Ertughral, how do we feel? I'm not comparing the two, but you know, there's a positive side, right? That it, it brings some sense of whatnot. Well, what if it's blatant propaganda like this series? It's the Mahabharata, the whole epic of the gods and what the gods did. And, you know, the, the mythology of Hinduism portrayed for the first time in television. So this series, believe it or not, instigated riots in Ayodhya. Understandably, the sentiment is being raised up. And this is when the RSS, which is the precursor of the BJP, the RSS jumps in and they make the Babri Masjid an iconic battleground. This was when RSS decided this is going to be our main focus. And it was only just a few years where the RSS leaders, their names are well known, some of them were MPs in government at the time, they instigated thousands of people in mobs to storm the barbed wire and to physically demolish the masjid with axes and rocks and stones, with their bare hands. Like the level of fanaticism is terrifying. What they, didn't, they, they literally stormed the facility and they demolished this 550-year-old masjid in a matter of a day or two with their bare hands and whatever they could find at home. And obviously, when they demolished the masjid, the Muslims tried to defend. Massacres ensued. One of the first of the many massacres that have taken place in that country was over the Babri Masjid in 1992. 87, 88 was the television series. It took a while for the fomenting, multiple attempts. 1991, they attempted. 1992 was the successful one. 1992, they storm Babri Masjid. The Muslims tried to defend because it's iconic. It's a matter of izzah and pride. It's a matter of, it's a matter of heritage. And not just the Muslims who defended. Hundreds of people around the city. Riots across the country. Over 3,500 Muslims lost their lives because of the Babri Masjid issue. Not because they're defending. It's a few hundred are defending. It's the, the, the communal riots that happen. And the fervor that comes. I'm going to kill every Muslim out there. And across the country, including in Delhi itself, which is the capital. Because of Babri Masjid, riots take place in Delhi and Hindus and Muslims are fighting on the streets and Muslims are killed because of what's happening in Babri Masjid. Obviously, the government has to get involved and so the government once again shuts down the land and court cases are launched by multiple groups. Multiple groups sue the government to take control of the land. To make a long story short, the regional uh, uh, government, the Allahabad government, which is like the federal or the state level, they tried to placate all the parties. And so in 2010, they gave the verdict, we will divide the land into three parts. One part for the Muslims, 
and one part for one sect of Hinduism and one part for another sect of Hinduism. So two-thirds to Hindus and one-third to the Muslims. Who's going to be happy? No one. No one was happy at this verdict. Neither the Hindus nor the Muslims. And so a counter-appeal was launched. This counter-appeal went all the way to India's Supreme Court. Supreme Court of India had to get involved in this issue. And one of the things that they did was they decided to do an archaeological survey. Let us find out, is there a mandir, is there a temple under this or not? Long story short, this survey is highly contested and politicized. Can you imagine in this environment, you're going to get a real researcher? It's not going to happen. You understand? And what's a nice way of putting this? The person in charge of the survey, um, he has a Muslim name. In all the people in India, they found somebody with a Muslim name. But we know that he's not actually a, a believer. I mean, he's born in a Muslim family, but he's a Marxist, agnostic, whatever. And not surprisingly, the verdict came that there was a magnificent mandir under this masjid. A mandir is a temple. When they showed the results and whatnot, every neutral academics, like there's no evidence for this at all. You found some bones, you found this and that, but like actual evidence is not. But this document was registered as evidence. And they found a Muslim to do it. Because again, you understand the, 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 the PR that has to be done here. And based on that architectural research and survey, which is available, you can see it. And I'm not an architect, I'm not an archaeologist, but what I have read, nobody worth their salt believes this. This is just complete, you know, reading and whatnot. Most, almost everybody who reads the report says there's no evidence whatsoever. What they did find, there were structures and monuments that date back thousands of years. No evidence of a temple. No evidence of an actual structure. But people used to live there. We all know that. Of course people lived there. There were other buildings there. But there's no evidence of any temple over there. Khair, in any case, this guy, um, his name is K.K. Muhammad. You can look it up. K.K. Muhammad, you can look it up. Uh, this person wrote the report. And he had a whole team of others. But he's the main person. His name is on there. And the verdict was, clearly there was a mandir before there was a masjid. The high court, the supreme court, took this archaeological survey and said based on this this is under the bjp 2019 the bjp is in charge based on this report we say the masjid was built illegally and therefore hindus get 100 percent of the land and we give you green light to build the largest temple you want on there this is the bjp government and so that 2019 verdict was finally completed yesterday with the construction of a multi-million dollar grandiose, you know, very gaudy temple, as you can understand. So this is the brief academic uh, history. Now, this is the first part of our lecture today. One thing that I have stressed multiple times, I've spoken about the BJP and the RSS and the Hindutva. We as Muslims need to learn our history. And we need to reject this basic premise of Hindutva. That, what is their premise? What is their understanding of history? They believe we had a we meaning the Hindus had a magnificent civilization. We had a glorious empire. They believe the Muslim fanatics came and ruined us. Muslim fanatics came and squashed our civilization. 
And had it not been for them, we would have been America and Europe. This is their notion. Had it not been for them, we would have been the global superpower. And therefore, it is our job to cleanse India from Muslims. And make India only for the original people, and that is the Hindus. And like all such far-right fascist ideologies, it combines elements of religion, a version of Hinduism, elements of ethnicity, pure blood, and Hindu blood is considered to be outsider and polluted, sorry, Muslim blood is considered to be outsider and polluted, and elements of fanatical nation-state. India is for Hindus. So when you combine religion and you combine ethnicity and you combine extreme nationalism, this is the recipe for the same type of fascist ideologies like the Nazis and like other such ideologies. So we as Muslims need to learn our history and especially the Muslims who are linked to that land. This means all the Muslims of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that is our heritage. I've said this multiple times. Even Nepal include that as well. That is our heritage. We are formed from that land. All of us, we are formed from that land. We need to know our history and we need to point out that this understanding is a complete, complete fabrication. It has no basis whatsoever. Fact of the matter is that unfortunately, sometimes even some Muslims from that region, they kind of sort of believe this, that, oh, India had an empire and then Muslims came and, and then Muslims changed it or whatnot. No, this is not true at all. And to demonstrate this, I'm going to go over six or seven quick points. Every one of them deserves a lecture, but I just want to mention it very briefly. Let us begin. Historically, historically, to claim that Hinduism united India is itself a massive mistake because I need you to understand this very simple point. Hinduism is not like a religion that we understand. Hinduism is a collection of diverse beliefs, contradictory ideologies. Hinduism is not like Islam or Judaism or Christianity, set beliefs. No. Hinduism doesn't have a unified theology. It doesn't have unified rituals. It doesn't even have the same gods. Actually, Hinduism is the name given to many hundreds of different philosophies, ideologies, theologies. And within one of these strands, you will not view the other strand as being the same as you. You will not, you might as well view it as an outside religion altogether. It is only the outsiders, and that's the British in particular, who can label all of these different groups as basically being one. Additionally, Hinduism is known for a strict adherence to the caste system. And the caste system has always caused them to be disunited. It is a very important fact of history that it was the Muslims who acted as a catalyst to bring the caste together under a system of government. This is a very well-known and yet rarely mentioned fact of history. The Muslims don't care about castes. They don't care if you're Brahman, if you're Shodra, if you're, if you're untouchable. Muslims don't care. So the Muslims acted as a catalyst to bring diverse groups of Hindus together to work under one administration, one group. The Hindus would never have been able to do that of their own. 
Also, factually speaking, this notion of Hindus being a tolerant, you know, uh, a vibrant uh, diversity, this has been disproven by many academic books. One of the famous historians of India, one of the professors at the Delhi University, his name is D.N. Jha, G-H-A, D.N. Jha, J-H-A. His books are found in Amazon. He was the main professor of Indian history at Delhi University, and he was very anti-BJP. He's a Hindu, but he's anti-BJP. He wrote so many books to irritate the BJPs that the, the BJP literally, you know, they, they, they almost, <laughs> I'm not saying killed him, but they almost like tried to kick him out and whatnot. And he documents that before the coming of Muslims, Every Hindu dynasty would regularly demolish the temples of others. They didn't have any sanctity of religion. And in fact, he mentions the number of temples demolished under Muslims is a fraction of what was demolished pre-coming of Islam. And he and others mention that Hindu-Muslim sectarianism only began with the arrival of the British. We're going to come back to this point multiple times. This is historically. Politically, politically, India was never united, ever. Even under the Muslims, it was never united. India was always multiple competing dynasties. And the largest dynasty and the largest empire before the coming of the colonizers, the British, was without a doubt the Mughal dynasty. If India had any unity, it is because of the Mughals. No other dynasty ever conquered even a fraction of the land the Mughals did simultaneously. And the Indian BJP loves to think about the classical uh, ancient uh, kings like Ashoka. Ashoka's dynasty in 250 CE was literally one-sixth the size of Aurangzeb's. Ashoka had nothing compared to Aurangzeb. So the very notion of a unified India does not exist. Hindutva is based on the premise that India belongs to Hindus. There was no India before colonization and there was no Hindus before colonization. The very premise falls apart. Do you understand this point? As I explained. There was no unified India. The concept of India as being one land is coming from the British. And the concept of Hinduism as being one theology is once again coming from the outsider. Also politically, the Muslims were never colonizers. The Muslims ruled as locals. They adopted the culture. They gave back to the culture. As for the British, the British ruled as a superior class. The British were distinct. The British lived separately, acted separately. The British did not learn the language. The British did not care about India. The British lived as a superior caste amongst all of them. As for the Muslim dynasties, all of them, they lived with the people like the people. And they took charge as they are a part of the people. And in fact, they defended India from external invaders. One of the iconic battles that every Muslim should mention in these types of discussions, when the Mongols invaded. You know the Mongols sacked Baghdad, 1248. The Abbas al-Khilafah came to an end. When they finished Baghdad, they turned their attention to India. And they attacked India. Who defended India against the Mongols? Alauddin Khilji. Alauddin Khilji. The Turkic, the Muslim, this is pre-Mughal, 
This is way before Babur. If you don't know your history, Babur comes, you know, 1450, right? 1500. We're talking about Alaaddin Khilji in the 1280s, 1290s. This is way before Babur. Khilji is from the Delhi Sultanate, way before them. He is the one, one of the few generals and leaders in human history who defeats the Mongols. Had it not been for Khilji, the Mongols would have taken India and truly India would not have been India anymore. Hindus need to understand and appreciate when the Muslims ruled, they ruled as if it is their land and they defended as if it is their land. That's exactly what they did over here. And that's why in the War of Independence, 18, uh, 1857, when they rebelled against the British, when the Hindus needed an icon to fight behind, the Hindus and the Muslims chose Khan Bahadur Shah Zafar, the last Mughal emperor. The Hindus rallied the Mughal emperor, you be our leader against the British. They understood they were one against the Angres, against the British. They understood this. And again, one point we're going to mention over and over again, this division of India into Hindu and Muslim hating one another, it is straight from the British playbook. How does the British play? Divide and conquer. How does the British rule over vast territories? Divide and conquer. And they manifested this tactic most apparently in India. And the sad reality, BJP is not coming from the Vedic scriptures. BJP is coming from British tactics. This is the sad reality. Hindutva is not coming from ancient Hinduism. Hindutva is coming from a seed planted by British imperialists. The notion that India was a great civilization and the Muslims pillaged and whatnot, this notion was first advocated by the British. And they did so. Why? Because the Muslims were the militarily powerful and the elite, but the Hindus were the majority. So you have to divide between them. You have to create hatred. You have to make it such that this majority does not look up to the Hindu elite to fight against us. So the British for 200 years kept on preaching this narrative. And what was the thamara, the fruit of this narrative? The RSS. And what is RSS thamara? BJP, literally. Literally there's an isnad. The BJP comes from RSS. The RSS comes straight out of these tactics. The Hindutva believes India was a magnificent superpower. Once again, we stop them. We say, excuse me. The Mughal Empire was a superpower. If you want to consider Hindustan to be a superpower, it wasn't the Rajputs, it wasn't the Marathas, it wasn't the Guptas, it was the Mughal Empire. When the British first set foot in India, India's GDP was 25% of the world's GDP. That is what you call a superpower. India was one-fourth of the world's economic power. That's why everybody wanted to go there. Christopher Columbus wanted to go there. The British wanted to go there. The Portuguese wanted to go there. The Spanish wanted to go there. The Italians wanted to go there. Why? 
Not because of those other dynasties. It was because of the Mughal dynasty. The Mughal dynasty had one-fourth of the world's GDP. This is in around 1500. Fast forward to 1950 when the British leave, and India now has 4% of the world's GDP because of the British. The anger that the Hindutva have should not be towards the Mughals who had the GDP. It should be towards the British who really pillaged and plundered and, as the saying goes, looted. Even the word loot, they looted. Took it from Hindi. The word loot is from Hindi. And they looted loot and they took it into their own language. And the word loot, along with some other, other words, comes from Hindi. So, it is the British that the Hindutva should be angry at. Their own basic history they don't even know. As for intellectually, so much can be said. And wallahi, we Muslims from that region, we should be so proud, Islamically proud, nothing wrong with that, of our heritage. The types of icons we produced. If India had only produced Shah Waliullah al-Dihlavi, it is enough of a civilizational gift to the rest of the Ummah. But India produced so much more. India produced, of course, Ahmad Sir Hindi. India produced the Darsin Nizami, which is one of the most, in fact, today, it is the most taught Islamic curriculum in the whole world. You all know this. The Darsin Nizami, where was it produced? It was produced in India. India produced the, some of the most classical books, the Fatawai Alamgiriya under Aurangzeb. The father of Shah Waliullah was on the committee. Shah Waliullah's father was the one who wrote, or one of the many, who wrote Fatawa Hindiya, Fatawa Alamgiriya, one of the most iconic books of, it was the, the canon of law in India for 200 years. India produced a civilization, the likes of which, again, it is unparalleled in the time frame. And again, the very fact that Babur is coming and writing an autobiography, and Babur wrote aspects of fiqh even, like the, the, the Hanafi fiqh, he actually writing stuff, Babur, as the ruler, he's writing stuff in this regard. And India, or sorry, the Muslims of India also produced the greatest architectural icons of the country. Not just the Taj Mahal. Overall, the architecture of India. What is iconic about it? It is the Mughal architecture. It was the Muslims of India who worked to overcome the caste system, beginning with Babur. In fact, in his, uh, his Babur Nama, Babur is amazed, shocked, astounded to discover the caste system. And he goes, I don't understand. Groups of people are not talking to one another because of their background. Like he doesn't understand this. And so Babur begins to form alliances between them. You would never have had the glory of Hindustan without the catalyst of the Muslims to bring different groups together. Language-wise, modern Hindi is 30-40% from Turkic, Farsi, and Arabic, Arabic. Modern Hindi would not exist without the Muslim influence. So many Hindi words, Imarat, Sarkar, Dost, Nazar, Tijarat, Lota, it all comes from Turkic. Cuisine-wise, biryani, straight from the Persians. Gulab jamun is coming from the Persians. Jalebi, coming from the Arabs originally. And then obviously India size in the way. Can you imagine India without gulab jamun and biryani and jalebi? <laughs> Culturally bankrupt. It's all coming from the Mughal interactions. In fact, I mean, this is going to get me into a lot of trouble from my critics, and I have so many of them. May Allah protect me. SubhanAllah. 
Akhi, the critics, I sometimes wonder, ya akhi, can you sometimes shoot some arrows towards the BJP or Israel rather than towards your fellow Muslims? I just don't get it. Like the critics are so gung-ho, whatever thing they find, Yasir Qadi, this, that. Ya akhi, calm down. We have wars going on. BJP is going to do this. Just calm down. Look at some bigger issues. So I'm going to say something. I know my critics are going to go crazy with this. But I'm teaching you educational class here. I'm not endorsing. I'm just teaching you facts. So please understand. Just because I have a religious background doesn't mean everything I say becomes the stamp of approval. I'm teaching you history and facts. Where am I going with this? Bollywood. (laughs) This is going to get me into a lot of trouble. But you wouldn't have the Indian cinema without, without what? The Urdu Ghazal, the Urdu Sher Shairi, the Urdu Qawwali, Wallahi, this is an academic talk. Please don't misunderstand that I'm endorsing. Please. I'm being academic. I'm trying to explain Indian culture as we know it is intricately shaped by the Muslims. That's what I'm trying to say here. Please, my critics, understand. Don't just say, kafir, bid'a, shit. Calm down, ya khi, please. It's just, there's much more going on in the world. Wallahi, as I said, sometimes shoot some arrows outside rather than inside. But factually speaking, what was the all of the elders here, by the way, you're older than me, some of you. What was the iconic movie that made Indian cinema global? Look at this. Everybody, you heard what he said, right? Everybody knows this. All of the Indian Pakistani Bengalis know this. The Arabs are like, what is this? There was a famous movie released way before me. What is the year? Tell me. No, no, not in the 40s. I know that much. I think it's 60. I think it's 60s, sometime in the 60s. I know this because my parents told me they saw it as, as young men in Karachi. So I know this, that they came out on the cinema, so they went to the, the, the movie theater. So I know it's in the 60s because my dad told me he saw it as a young man uh, in Karachi. So Mughal-e Azam, Mughal-e Azam was the first blockbuster movie that made, it wasn't called Bollywood at the time, it made Indian cinema global. Mughal Azam is about the Muslims. The story is written by Muslims. The director of the movie is a Muslim. And the actor that plays in it, Dilip Kumar, is a Muslim. Dilip Kumar, you know, I know. You know. you know, I also grew up in the 80s. I mean, come on, cut me some slack. It's not as I'm totally disconnected, guys, okay? The entire, you would not have, and by the way, all of those movies are in basically Urdu. It's in Urdu. Imagine this. You could not have Indian cinema without the, the, the literature, without the eloquence, without the, 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 the whole culture of Indian Muslims. They were the ones who brought the whole notion of Ghazal and Sher Shahidi and the whole characters and I mean even I'm really getting into trouble man but um, Gabbar Singh (laughs) is really getting me into trouble may Allah protect me (laughs) I'm teaching you history guys his character is based off of Urdu novels the guy who wrote the script Muslim and the guy who played him Muslim and the movie name Shole itself is from an Arabic and Farsi word I'm sorry but this is the reality Right? Iconic movies, iconic characters, iconic scripts. They're all coming from which heritage? Muslim heritage of India. 
What I'm trying to say is very simple. This perversion of Hindutva, that we had civilization and the Muslims came and destroyed it, it is a figment of imagination. We are not claiming that we did everything. I'm not saying this. But we are claiming that without us, modern India would not be modern India. It would not be recognizable. The whole culture, the whole language, everything would be totally different. And some of the greatest achievements of Hindustan, not all of them, but some of them, they owe directly to what the Muslims contributed. The shape of India, the culture of India, the language of India, the cuisine of India, the arts of India, the architecture of India, the GDP of India. What more do you want? Seriously. And this is what makes Muslims different from the British. The British came and robbed and pillaged and took and grabbed. The Muslims came and built. The Muslims came and gave. The Muslims came and was interaction. That's the fundamental difference. And one awkward reality. They say, okay, but Islam is a foreign religion. They say, you guys are born in Arabia. And to respond to that, we need a little bit more academics. Firstly, as I explained, to claim that Hinduism is one religion is a very modern notion. Classical ancient people who lived there did not view themselves as one faith. You understand this point, that the number of gods in Hinduism is in the hundreds of thousands. And when you worship Vishnu versus Rama versus this, you might as well be on a different faith. There's no commonality between them. And that's why even we understand southern India, you know, Malayalam types in Kerala is very different from northern India. Ethnically different, ideologically different, culturally different. These are very distinct civilizations. So the notion that only us, we are foreign, it doesn't make any sense. Also, Muslims have been in India literally since the time of the Tabi'un. Literally, 700 CE. It's not as if it's something recent. But they say, oh, but it was the Mughals who spread Islam. Before the Mughals, Muslims were 5%. The Mughals, it came to 40%. Firstly, this is true. When Babur came and enters, Babur comes and Muslims are less than 5% in India. Very small percent. You know, the Delhi Sultanate and whatnot, very small. Under the Mughal dynasty, in the next 200, 250 years, the Muslims grow astronomically. From 5 to 40% when partition happens. Hindutva says, forced conversion. Hindutva says, you stripped our ancestors from their religion and you forced them. And of course, they blame primarily who? One person? Aurangzeb. They primarily blame Aurangzeb. So, one of the most famous researchers in this regard is Professor Richard Eaton here in America. He's a historian. Richard Eaton has specialized in conversion in India. He has written books and articles. Very neutral guy. He's not a Muslim, he's not a Hindu, he's, not, he's just a historian. And Richard Eaton answers this question in a number of publications very meticulously. I have glanced over some of them, and I didn't read them page by page, but I've glanced over some of them to get an idea of where he's coming from. He literally goes over court documents in every century looking at Muslim Hindu names. He goes over ancient records, and he plots out the rate of conversion. Very, very meticulous work. He plots out the rate of conversion under the Mughals. And to make a long story short, he says 
that there is no evidence of significant forced conversion. There's nothing like this. Sure, maybe some crazy person might have done it in some village somewhere, but as a policy, never. Never did any emperor, including Aurangzeb, this is just a myth and a lie, that mass conversion took place. Rather, according to uh, uh, Professor uh, Richard, according to Professor Richard Eaton, conversion takes place organically around high populations of Muslims. Not where the centers of leadership are. Rather, where there's large groups of Muslims, such as the Punjab, such as the Bengal, you get people converting around there, which indicates conversion was one-on-one organically and not politically up-down. Conversion was bottom-up. Conversion took place when the people are interacting with the Muslims. One-on-one, simple da'wah. Not forced conversion. This is the conclusion of a Western historian who specializes in this. And just FYI, I mean, just on a personal anecdote, I have done quite a lot of research in my own uh, family history in this regard, and I found the exact same thing. I have, I'm, this is, I'm not at all ashamed to mention, five generations ago from my father's, literally far from father, father's side, five generations ago, my ancestor was a Brahman Hindu in Lucknow. I know I, we discovered this fact, and it was something that I didn't know at the time. It was something that was an eye-opener for me. Five generations ago, 1850, 1850, my own ancestor was a Brahman, and he converted. Uh, and we know exactly, I visited the village, I saw the house he lived in, I saw the masjid he built. And the story of conversion was exactly this. Anecdotally, that interacting with, you know, a, a, a peer, a Sufi sheikh, interacting with a, a religious person, and he's impressed with the akhlaq, and he converts. And from my grandmother's side, uh, we know that, and I thought this was a myth, but I have uncovered it's true. We come from the descendants of the Abbasid Empire when the Mughals came. The Al al Bayt, the Abbasids, fled to India, and so their descendants came. And I'm just saying anecdotally, I am a product of that land. From one side, literally, uh, uh, a Brahman Hindu, and from another side, literally, the Sayyid. This is exactly what India is it's the coming together of these cultures and civilizations. That's exactly what India did. So, this notion of forced conversion is completely false. Rather, it is one on one interactions with the people, it is the beauty of Islam. Other academics say, other academics say, one of the main causes of conversion was the Brahman arrogance against the lower caste. Don't blame Islam. The Brahman arrogance of not interacting, not touching, not this and that. And the lower castes feel, why should I be in a faith that's going to treat me this way when Muslims are all egalitarian? So rather than again blame us, look internally over there. So, Conversion in India was never forced. Had it been forced, it would not be only 40%. You want to see a forced conversion? You want to see a forced conversion? Look at the Philippines. The Philippines. What religion is the majority of Philippines? What type? Catholic. They are pakka Catholic, hardcore Catholic. What is Catholicism? And they're very hard Catholic. What is Catholicism doing in the Philippines? On the other side of the world. 85% of the country, Catholic. How did that happen? The Spanish. That's what you call forced conversion. Mughal India, had it done forced conversion, it would not just be 40%. Impossible. Impossible. So no, there is no forced conversion here. Bottom line, before I get to the final part, then we conclude. Bottom line, 
the Hindutva notion of history is absolutely mythology. It doesn't have an iota of facts to it. And never in the history of India was there an all-out Hindu versus Muslim war. Never until the British came. Under every Mughal emperor, you had Hindus fighting. And under every Indian emperor outside of Mughals, the Rajputs, you know, the Marathas, you had Muslims fighting. It was a political war. It was never an all-out Hindu versus Muslim. I'm not saying we're the same. Of course, we're not the same. But they understood that we're not going to fight each other and kill each other just because just we have different faiths. The first time Hindu-Muslim riots break out is in the 1850s under the British. And why? Because the British started this tactic under Warren Hastings, if you know the name, and then especially the most evil of them, Lord Curzon. Lord Curzon in the 1980s. These people were downright evil. And they had an intentional tactic of divide and conquer. And Warren Hastings in particular was one of the main people. This is in the 1700s. He began claiming to the Hindus that it is the Muslims who have put your Vedic culture behind. It is the Muslims you need to blame. Obviously, he's the British. What's he going to say? Don't blame us, blame them. So as the one in charge of the East India Trading Company, there was no Raj in his time, he's in charge of the East India Trading Company, Warren Hastings begins this plot, this ploy. We're not the ones you should blame, oh, majority of Hindus. Those Muslims are the evil people. Believe it or not, the BJP is the great-great-grandson of Warren Hastings' type of ideology. That's where it is coming from. So to conclude, I talked about the history, I talked about the Hindutva ideology. What are the political ramifications now of the destruction of the temple, of the mosque and the building of the temple? There is no question that this is a massive symbolic triumph of the false narrative of Hindutva. It is a physical manifestation of their false mythology. It is a physical manifestation of their claim that India is for Hindus only and that Muslims should be wiped off just like the Babri Masjid was wiped off. Just like the Masjid was physically destroyed and replaced with the temple, so too goes the idea, we need to get rid of the Muslims and replace them with us. And that's why across Indian media, across all newspapers, Muslim dignity is being violated, minor incidents, mob incidents are on the rise, and if you listen to Modi's speech, I swear to you, it is reminiscent of Hitler's first speech when he became the Fuhrer. When Hitler first became the Fuhrer, he said, this is the beginning of a new dawn. He said, we're going to see Germany glorious for a thousand years. Literally, when I was hearing Modi, I'm like, have you taken from Hitler or what? The same phrases that you, you heard from Hitler in 1933, we're hearing from Modi in, 19, in 2024. The exact same Nazism, BJP, and Zionism are all three sides of the same ideology. The BJP and the Zionists have strong relationships. Why? Hindus love the Zionists. Right now we're witnessing Gaza. I'm going to link it into Gaza. Why do you think the Hindu, the Hindutva, I should say, when I say Hindus, I should scrap that Hindutva. 
There are many Hindus, they're good people, and the, obviously the theology is wrong, I have to say this, because again the refuter is going to come and say, oh, you said the Hindus are good people. I'm, no, I'm saying their theology is wrong, but they're not, they're not going to be people that are going to kill us just because they're Hindus. The Hindus were not like this. The Hindutva, the Hindutva and the Zionists form alliances together. Why? Because they're the same ideology. Ethnic superiority, religious zeal, and nationalism for one group. That's Zionism, and that's Hindutva, and that's Nazism. The exact same ideologies over and over again. And this is why here in America, the Hindutva are supporting Zionism. They are showing up at pro-Israeli lobbies, pro-Israeli uh, um, uh, uh, rallies, and showing their support. Online, the Hindutva is supporting the genocide and making fun of Palestine and the Muslims. Modi and Netanyahu are very good friends. They have met multiple times. When you see them, you think they're two long-lost brothers because they are long-lost ideological brothers. They are literally the same size of this, uh, the, the two sides of the same coin because both of them are calling for cultural genocide. Both of them are calling for historical genocide. There were no Palestinians in Palestine, the Zionists say. There, there was no you know, other people except us, the Hindus say. They want to erase the memory of Palestine. Even Hummus becomes Israel. Israelis, not, you know, like the, 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 the ma'arakah that takes place here. Same with the BJP. Everything is us, not them. So they want to eliminate Palestinians. They want to eliminate Muslims. The same ideology. What happens when you want to eliminate the culture and history? You start eliminating the people. Israel is doing this. Israel has begun. What does this mean for the BJP then? What does it mean for the Muslims of India? I want to conclude by stating... I wish I could conclude on a positive note. But I have nothing positive to say historically or practically, only positive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Iman. But from the reality around us, it appears that the situation in India is going to go from very bad to much worse. This triumphant success, this is a success at the highest level. We couldn't have imagined a bigger cultural success for the Hindutva. And everybody is scared of speaking against him. Just like the Fuhrer and Hitler. And those who do are marginalized, lose their jobs. It's only going to be a matter of time. They already get exiled. This is already happening. Hindus who speak against Hindutva have to flee for their lives to America and other places. Just like Nazi Germany. We are seeing the exact same reality in India. And it is terrifying for me and all of us. I still have family, extended, third, fourth cousins, but still I have family in that land. These are my people. In the end of the day, they're all of our peoples. And even if they weren't, they're our Muslim brothers and sisters. The future does not look bright, wallahi. So my advice, and I know some of them listen to this online, my advice to the Muslims of India first and foremost Return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You will need Allah's help. Secondly, unify amongst yourselves. O Muslims of India, now is not the time to be divided on any lines. Wallahi, this is one of our biggest problems. We see it now even, the pettiness of firaq, the pettiness of refutations. How foolish can you be? We have it in America. Imagine in India it's going on still. Oh, this is Bareilly, oh, this is Sufi, this is Salafi, this is Ahli Hadith. Come on. 
There's a time and a place, discuss it later on. Right now, you are one ummah. Right now, it doesn't matter when the Hindus come, they're not going to ask what your firqa is. They're not going to ask which madhab you follow. One ummah, one God, one Quran, one qibla, come together for his sake. Leave this firqa bazi and, and backwardness. Leave it. We have bigger things to deal with. And start becoming proactive. I'm not in India. I don't know what to tell you. But I do know you need to become politically savvy, politically active. You have allies in other communities, non-Muslim communities. Nothing wrong from the seerah. You take those allies. There are people that want the truth to be in India. They want a civil society. They are your allies. They want to live in a democracy that's not going to be killing people. They are your allies. Go and find them. Form alliances with them. This, be proactive in this regard. And as for us outside of India, it is our duty to raise awareness. It is our duty to lobby as much as we can. It is our duty to try to stop this because, subhanAllah, we conclude on this point, the most reputable NGO when it comes to genocide is called Genocide Watch. You can Google it, genocidewatch.org. And they have said that in all the countries in the world, this was a few months ago before what's happening in Gaza, India is the closest to an all-out next genocide. On a scale of 1 to 10, India is 8 and 9 in different areas. On a scale of 1 to 10, India is 8 to 9. 10 is too late, it's gone. India is already 8 in some levels and 9 in other levels. No other country before the issue of Gaza was this much. We are at a crisis right now. And every one of us needs to help. If you have relatives in India, wallah, and I know this is going to get me into trouble, my advice to people that I have spoken to is be, if you can get out, get out. This has been my advice. I could be wrong in this. I don't know. This is a very difficult thing to say. I don't know. But safety of your own families, your own women, our sisters, wallahi, may Allah protect. But what happened in 1947, maybe it's going to be even worse. 1947, for those who don't know, the largest mass migration in human history took place. The largest mass migration in human history. 15 million people crossed borders. And the amount of massacres and astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, rapes and rampaging and pillaging and 2 million people dead. How much houses torn down? How much? That is going to be a fraction of what might potentially happen there now, next. So I wish I had positive news. But still, our iman teaches us we hope for the best in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we take our measures. We take precautions. My final ask to all of you, follow the news, spread awareness, make dua. And for those of you who are experts and can tell us what to do specifically, my job is not to lobby. I don't know. My job is not to politic, but to raise awareness and to educate. For those who know, come to us, come to me. Let's see what we can do to try our best to stop what seems to be the path to a very, very dark future. This is like Nazi Germany in 1930 all over again. Literally. Nobody learns from history. We have to try our best to learn. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect the Muslims of India and all over the world. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant them safety and security from these bigots and hatred. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us all to do our part to try to minimize any harm and damage. And inshallah we'll continue on the topic next week. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. فيا ذلي ويا خجلي إذا ما قال لي ربي أما استحييته تعصيني ولا تخشى من العتب
وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وتأبى في الهوى قربي فتب مما جنيت عسى تعود إلى رضا